That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. So, morning, Ben. I see you've had a very busy week. You kept on popping up on my social media in various ways and forms uh, over the last few days. But you were down in Exeter, is that right? Amongst other things? I did. I've had a fantastic weekend, actually. It was really nice. Went back to Exeter Debating Society, which I used to run many, many, many years ago, uh, to do a debate on woke culture. This house regrets the rise of woke culture. Uh, and I was speaking with Peter Blexley, the former detective uh, and uh, star of Hunted on Channel 4 and also crime writer and investigator. Uh, and he's a top bloke, I have to say. Uh, an opinion cemented when he arrived at the end of the evening in the in the student bar with a massive tray of tequila shots uh, for everyone who was still standing. So it's great fun. Uh, and most importantly, we won the debate, which... Mm. not wanting to be too self-congratulatory on a university campus in 2023 that is not bad going um uh, so very chuffed with the result so i think there are about 150 people there and they run it in the way so you have an opening vote in which you can abstain uh, and it was 50 on our side against woke culture uh, 49 on the opposition side, and then I think there were 55 or 56 people who abstained. So, you know, basically three blocks of 50. Okay. Uh, and then by the time of the closing vote at the end, you can't abstain, so you have to get off the fence. Um, and uh, we won 84 to 71. So we won by 13 votes, so relatively tight, but yeah, mm. clear enough. Um, but the weird thing about the result well actually this is true of both votes was the incredibly stark sex divide so basically nothing we said persuaded any young women in that audience to vote for us they were against us in the opening vote before we'd opened our mouths and they were against us at the end um and of the 84 votes we won by my head count which is a little bit unscientific 76 of the 84 were men who voted for us. And you know this because it's, 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 so it's not like a secret ballot. It's stick your arm in the air. And I mean, how, how yeah. did you know it was, it was that many women? Do they, do they count that as well? No, I did while the vote was going on. So, I, and it was very quick. It was very quick. So I was counting seven women who'd voted for us. Right. Compared to 76 men who voted for us. So it was a really, really stark sex divide with a few crossovers uh many voted against us and women who voted for us but not really i mean it, it basically was a male versus female vote um and do you get many things from the floor ben so did you have many people yeah. making comments interjecting from the floor and again did you get that sense that sex divide from the interjections as well as from the final vote yeah, you do. So you, you give, there are four speakers who each speak for five or six minutes. And then there's a sort of ding dong between the two sides where they cross examine each other. And that got very heated very quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the audience Q&A. Um, and there really was this kind of uh, 
phenomenon which is is suggested and found in polling of of um young men and and young women so the gen z <clears throat> and um on all, all these sorts of issues about prioritizing protecting people from harm versus the importance of free speech and so on and it's really clear from the polling evidence in america and here and across the western world that young men prioritize speech more than women and women quite dramatically prioritize protecting people from harm over free speech and this was so clear in the audience q a um and it it, it was also, I, I thought, afterwards in the... So everyone goes to the student pub and that, that that's good fun. But even there, there was this kind of informal sex segregation where the <laughs> male students basically came to speak to me and Mr. Blexley uh, and female students generally went to go and speak to the defeated side. So mm. I don't know so what the hell's going on. You're not surprised on. by that, is that, Ben? That's what you're saying. So you, well, you would say this, this resonates with polling and yeah. resonates with uh, things that have been uh, sort of talked about before about woke the woke mind virus infecting women more than men. Uh, yeah, and I, I think David Starkey said at the Freedom Association conference a few weeks ago that, um, that woke is basically, a, uh, I'm not quoting him directly, but is a consequence of... Um, of women's way of thinking about things, I think that's probably overstating. I think it. I think it's a generational dimension. It's something to do with Gen Z women, because not least because so much of the backlash against woke is being led by middle-aged feminists. Um, mm. So I, I don't think it's quite right just to say that this is a product of uh, women having an abundance of empathy compared to men, and it, and it's a sort of. Uh, empathetic overload that's got in this mess i mean that, that is part of it that is part of it but it is something more particular to this generation and algorithms and social media and tiktok um and th there was this thing last week actually speaking of tiktok of um of bin laden's letter to america going viral um and yeah so th so so it's yeah. a generational yeah 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 this is bin laden's letter to america yeah that was published a, a year or so after uh, World Trade Center in 2002. Yeah. And all of these TikTok, and you're right, the ones I saw were, were primarily uh, women saying, go and read a letter to America and then come back and say that, you know, bin Laden wasn't onto something. This idea of the oppressed against um, the oppressor uh, yeah. seems to have just uh, infected uh, that, that certainly that generation. I, I think I'd agree with you. There's absolutely no, I just look at the, the free speech union staff. We have a lot of women, uh, um, just as many women as we do men. Look at the people who come yeah. for help. We have as many women as we do men. Um, I think it's very 50, 50 across our casework. So, you know, when you take the population as a whole, it's, it's a much more diluted effect but that very impressionable stage of life of around about 18, 19, 20, 21, mm. it does seem to be that the empathy that the woke, the woke way of thinking is all about uh, captures, captures the young female more than the young male. I mean, it, it's one of those good news, bad news things. I mean, the good news is, is great. We won a debate on regretting the rise of woke culture at a university in 2023 and obviously there is a cohort within this generation who do not want to be told what to do what they can and can't read and and so on um by bossy puritanical millennials like me 
Um, so that's great. That's really good. But there is this sex divide that, that, that's really troubling. Actually, one of the points I made when I was speaking, Tom, was I, I told a brief story anecdote of um, something happened to me when I was 16 and I was home alone. I was knocking on the door and there were a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who wanted to proselytize to me. And I have to say, I have a lot of time for people who... Did they convert you? They did not. But I have a lot of time for people who do that, put themselves in a public square to make their argument. You know, it, it takes it takes a certain kind of courage and uh, and conviction. But they knocked on the door. We had this chat. And then they said to me, uh, age 16, may I ask who chooses your reading material? And that wound me up like nothing else. Because at the age of 16, of course you're competent to choose your own reading material. And it really, you know when, you know what it's like when you're a teenager and you're, you're desperate to prove your independence and that you're ready for adulthood and all that kind of stuff. And it really wound me up. And I said to them that, that woke basically is a cultural movement that's premised on that same attitude, that somebody else needs to be choosing your reading material for you and choosing what you watch for you and so on. Good to um, see you were precocious. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I i hope that that point came across because it, there is this you know lots of work is this anxiety about about people somewhere having fun and, and needing to put a stop to it and not trusting people to to, to think the right things and so on um yeah there's one other point i make tom sorry i'm i'm um, i'm filibustering you a bit here but but there's just one other thing that occurred to me while we're on this subject um and it's this concept of the ideological turing test i.e. can you give the arguments of your opponents in a way that's convincing enough, plausible enough, understanding enough that somebody listening might think that you genuinely held those beliefs. So it's, it's an extrapolation from the Turing test in AI to test whether whether an artificial intelligence, a computer, has um, can appear sentient. Um, and again, in political science, there's so much evidence that shows that conservatives consistently understand and can explain progressive liberal viewpoints in a way that shows they comprehend them, whereas the reverse is not true. Progressives are very bad at articulating conservative views or explaining why conservatives think the things that they do. And this, my God, this came across with the opposition side. I mean, there was so much... Uh, from one speaker uh, only, I should say, reaching towards, well, if you're against woke, you must want to to reverse things back to the 50s and bring back racism and bring back homophobia um, and everyone in the Free Speech Union defends must be a bigot and so on. And it's all about uh, people people whining about cancel culture are really just powerful people who want uh, more freedom to be bigoted and racist. And <clears throat> this was what this guy thought we think. Mm. And there was just this complete, I mean, I, I get where the woke side is coming from. I understand how they've arrived at the conclusions. I think they're, they're wrong. I think they'll be disastrous. I think, well, they are being disastrous already. But I understand the logical steps that they've got there. I understand the, the moral principles that are, that are burning within them. Um, but, you know, this guy just did not get at all why you'd be concerned about a cleaner who's has lost her job because she thinks you can't change sex. You know, he just thinks, well, that's bigoted. And that's the end of the story. You've covered a lot of things there, um, Ben. Yeah. You've touched on a lot of areas. Uh, that idea of the the woke viewpoint that cannot put itself in the shoes. There's a, there's many, there's a contradiction there. Because on the one hand, they, it, they can't put themselves in the shoes of a conservative. And we know this happens in all sorts of ways along the lines of, um, 
all Tories are evil, you know, from a from a political mm. perspective. Yeah. Um, all Tories are in that tribe. It's a form of tribalism. If you're not in our tribe, then you must be, you know, drinking the blood of of, of yeah. newborn yeah. sacrificed at dawn. You know, that's what you're doing. So there's this contradiction because on on that there's that on the one hand, but on the other hand, the empathy that you mention, that sense of siding with the so-called or alleged oppressed is contradictory there because um, you're essentially saying, I can't empathize with uh, those who support free speech, but I really over-empathize with the alleged weak, the alleged um, victims of the times we live in, whether that's the transgender ideologues or whether that's uh, sort of Islamist views that we talked about. So there's inherent contradiction there. And as you were speaking as well, coming myself from, from a more conservative background, when I hear an accusation from uh, the woke side and, uh, and I think, okay, my f- what are they saying? That's my first reaction. What are they saying? Do they have a point? Am I genuinely here missing something? And yeah. I think there's the, the, there's that other reaction. We question on 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 the sort of um, traditional liberal enlightenment um, side. We question constantly our own position. We talked before about how often we have our mind changed, which is very yeah. related to what you were doing last week in Exeter, changing minds. Um, and we, as we get older, inevitably. I mean, I'm I'm. I'm I, I change my mind seemingly less and less and less, but hopefully I'm I'm asking questions, and you start to realise that the questions you ask of yourself become as important as the answers that you're currently clinging to and holding on to. So I'm really interested in a number of elements of what you've said there, some of the internal contradictions um, and empathy. I mean, going back to your point about empathy, Paul Bloom wrote a book called Against Empathy and said there's a real inherent problem with empathy, which is that it shines a spotlight on a very specific person or a very specific circumstance and pulls on your heartstrings. But the reality is that is a very, very, it's exactly that. It's very specific. There are a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand other versions of that suffering around that the spotlight is not showing. And so empathy, because it, narrows your view down so much to the particular suffering you see in charities do this all the time they have that person peering at you from the leaflet that arrives mm-hmm. or during covid they have that person peering at you um, from behind a mask saying you know do you want to hurt this person empathy in its in this way paul bloom's hypothesis is uh, is is very destructive and ultimately can lead to all sorts of societal problems um, because it's, it's a spotlight when you actually need a much broader sweep of how to think about society and how to put society together. Um, so you've, you've, you've set me off on all sorts of tracks there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the, the point I found myself making at the end, you, you give a sort of one, two-minute summary speech at the end that, that, that's improvised, basically. And I, I made the point that um, any functional society that's not ancient Egypt, you know, completely frozen in amber, stuck in time, exactly the same, basically, for 3,000 years. Any society that, that progresses must also maintain a continuity with 
the past. So I said, I'm not, I, I'm not here arguing against all social change. Um, but there, there is a, a process in, in democracy for our system to work where you have to have the, the contestation between conservatives slowing down social change and progressives spotting the, the hypocrisies or the moral failures of conservatives or whatever. You have to have both of those forces. Now, I lean to the conservative side of that, um, and I said as much on Friday. Um, but what Woke does is, is accelerate this to the point where that where that continuity of the past is completely severed, um, and of course that then shuts huge sections of people. I mean, a majority of people out of society. Um, but one point I made that, that got a bit of a laugh um, was I, I asked for permission to say something quite woke, uh, which was the shocking revelation. Um, listeners, brace yourself that I'm a vegetarian, and I <laughs> boo hiss. I made I made the point that. Um, in a university audience, there'd be a significant minority of people there who were vegans or vegetarians. And I asked for a show of hands and about you know, a quarter or a third of the people there were. And I said, now keep your hand up if you've never eaten meat in your life. And almost all of the hands went down apart from two men at the back. And I said, congratulations, you will survive the cultural revolution. But if this rate of social change increases or just stays the same for the next 60 years, I said, however woke you are and progressive you are now, there is no way you will be able to defend your conduct to future generations who are as radicalized as the most progressive woke Gen Zers are now. Um, and as anyone knows who's read anything about European revolutions, nobody's safe from this kind of revolutionary fervor. All of the old Bolsheviks get shot by Stalin. It's, it's, that, it's that same phenomenon. Yeah. Acceleration. Exactly. Yeah. It's been a word on my mind this week. Ben, it feels that um, we've talked a bit, lot about this, the woke culture and the culture wars accelerating, getting worse. Um, I'm really getting a feeling of that now. I saw a clip of you talking about our casework, explaining to people uh, just that it's worse than people think. But, um, mm. you know, it doesn't seem mad now in a way that it might have seemed just five years ago to talk about where, and I'm using this phrase woke mind virus, but to see where this woke mind virus goes and the disaster that it will logically lead to, because this is what history teaches us. It teaches us that um, if we allow a certain way of thinking, a very black and white, good and evil way of thinking, almost like a Star Wars, you know, yeah. you're only all good or you're only all evil. Yeah. Um, if we allow that to take root, and the problem is that we have allowed that to take root, then um, that sense of right and wrong, good and evil, and what's good for society, what's bad for society, is lost. And it's lost in a very profound way. And this is the article that um, I read this week by Dr. Peter Hughes called The Tyranny of Pathological Kindness, where Again, he's saying something that is not utterly, does not dissimilar in any way to episodes and, and, and segments that we've had before, Ben, which have been all about this, that um, the kindness, alleged kindness, the hashtag kindness, is yeah. actually a pathology. And, and this idea of pathology, this idea of a virus is sort of the other thing that has sort of come together a little bit for me recently is the it is this is exactly that this is a virus 
This is a pathology, and it's called kindness. And what's happening is that these words are captured by the sort of small number of psychopaths that exist in any society. And I've Jordan Peterson says something similar. There's a small number of psychopaths in any society, and they're very smart, and they're very clever, and they're very able to manipulate people. And if they're able to manipulate a certain proportion of the population um, with these words, with these um, snaky, uh, yeah. snake oil words like kindness and empathy, uh, then society heads rapidly in the wrong direction and ultimately heads in a very disastrous. And it's not unreasonable to talk about things like mass murders and um, genocide at the end of this process, whereby those who think they're good become so obsessed with it that they do these utterly appalling things. Um, and what in this article, Dr. Peter Hughes, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, it's called The Tyranny, of pathological kindness, he says, well, what do we do about this? And you have to treat it as a virus. You have to, you have to isolate the, the sort of psychopathic tendencies of a society over here, and you have to recapture over here the real kindness, the real mercy, the real good. Um, and he references the end of the French Revolution uh, when finally you got a judge who was merciful over people uh, towards the end uh, of of those of that of the terrors, because before then the ideas of mercy were were in themselves evil. Being merciful was evil. I mean, if you're merciful, you're against the French Revolution. If you're merciful, you're against Maoist China. If you're merciful, you're against Kim Jong Un's North Korea. And it's the same with the woke virus. If you don't believe in critical race theory, you are racist and you're yes. evil. So therefore, you need to be stamped out. Um, it's a really powerful article. I don't know how it how it resonated with you, Ben. It's, it's the Leninist mantra, isn't it, that it's better that a hundred innocent people should die than that one counter revolutionary should live. Um, and it, it, it's that it's that same source of uh, that same impulse. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I agree completely. And it's the the hashtag be kind mentality of hmm. trans rights that seems obviously to me a psychological hook that is much, much more effective on young women than any other demographic. Um, it, they're a group of people who who are utterly susceptible to that, reinforced with the social pressure of all of their friends and their algorithms pushing that on them. Um, and you can see the end result of, of uh, young women in significant numbers campaigning against their own best interests campaigning against their own safety in fact with with the trans debate i mean at this debate on friday it wasn't about trans but obviously trans comes into this as, as it does to, to all sorts of uh, discussions on these lines and i just made the point that a conservative politician might say well okay fine some people want to say that they're trans and they want to live their life in a certain way and so long as that doesn't infringe on others blah 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 um, but society has a right to to hold back the progressive uh impulse by saying well of course a 10 year old child can't consent to puberty blockers and it was like the oxygen had been sucked out of the room when i said that um and there, there was a row of, of mm. women in front of me who looked genuinely horrified that i had said that 
shocked. Is that right? I mean, so it was, it was, it was a feeling in the room, yeah. the, the frostiness that... E- even having been um, sort of prefaced with the, you know, adults can do what they like as long as they're not infringing on the rights of others spiel. Um, even with that, they were just completely horrified by the idea that somebody would think that and come to a room where they were present and say that. Um, it was really wow. kind of jarring. But, you know, again, it's, it's this sex divide. The, you know, men, there, the overwhelming majority of them agreed and some of the women did as well. But um, actually, but just before we move on, I, I must give a plug for a uh, substack by Freya India called Girls, which is brilliant on the uh, the sex divide, the, the wars between the genders, uh, the two genders, I should say. Um, so that's really good. I've been reading that a lot. Um, and uh, both both with my sort of free speech hat on and with my um, parent of a three-year-old daughter hat on. Um, so yeah, I would recommend that. I think that's um, all I want to say about Exeter. Um Oh, actually, sorry. There's just one more thing about about this this point about um, changing people's minds and whether you can. Um, because Dominic Cummings uh, tweeted something over the weekend. He was talking about Owen Jones and the inability of anybody to make a factual case to Owen Jones that would change his mind about Israel Palestine. Um, and he said, and I quote. They're captured by a moral story, and only a different moral story can displace the madness. Not fact checking. So, in other words, there's no amount of empirical evidence that will, uh, that will that will change somebody's mind if they've brought into a particular moral narrative, and then once they've brought into that narrative, they then use their uh, their their reason and their intelligence to construct a, a logical uh, sort of suit of armor around it. Um, but really, the heart of it is not the facts or the logical case they use it's the moral story um and i think with council culture we have a really powerful moral story about the harm it causes to as i said this example of the the cleaner who's earning 16 or 17k who's he's lost a job or um i often use the example of colonel calvin wright the army doctor um who who was forced out of the army in fact he had no choice but to resign so these are really powerful moral stories um and they explain where we're where we're coming from and why we're concerned about this but we are up against not a different set of facts per se, but this countervailing moral story that young women really buy into, um, that the most important thing society should do is protect its vulnerable members from harm, and trans people are the most vulnerable members of society. In fact, Tom, I think we're speaking on Transgender Day of Awareness. Um, I mean, as if as if society Probably. doesn't spend enough time talking about it. Um, so it, it's the clash of these two moral narratives, um, and it's it's really difficult to get somebody to change their mind once they're once they're committed. Um, particularly if you have a, a quote unquote trans child, uh, there's no amount of yeah. logical evidence that's going to persuade you out of that. I mean that that well, is. I, I don't think a fact right. checker has changed a single mind uh, ever. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. don't think that fact checking as an approach is particularly useful. Obviously, facts matter. Particularly in a, you know, when reporting uh, as a media outlet, facts matter. But fact checking as a means of changing someone's moral outlook on life, it, it's not going to work. And you're right. The only thing, and this comes back to what we were saying last week about Ayan Hershey Ali. You know, the, the thing that that she needed was a moral narrative, and that's why I wasn't surprised that she became a Christian, um, yeah. because it feels that 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 that. F- filled um, the, the gap, the, not, a, not a God-shaped hole, but a moral narrative-shaped hole, if you will, yeah. uh, that everyone needs to fill, even atheists, even you, Ben. You need a, you need a moral <laughs> narrative. Well, I agree. In your I, life. 
Yeah, um, I, I just my my quibble with uh, with her is just whether I mean I, I get completely where she's coming from. Actually, I really I really do. Um, I just mm. don't quite see that you can. Well, that you can sort of reason your way to religion without any, without also taking that the irrational, the emotional step of actually having conviction. Read, read Acts chapter seventeen, but that's some homework for you for the next week. Right, but we, we should move on to the next item, yeah. which is uh, another instance of a. Um, we had we had this instance of a, a metropolitan police officer writing anonymously last week, which was very interesting because um, uh, that article revealed a lot of what we talked about was seemed from his perspective anyway was, was right that. Um, the senior officers were very, very afraid of, of coming across in any way as racist um, if they came out and arrested the pro-Palestinian um, uh, protesters who were who were going over the the line of what was reasonable on the march. Well, to this week we've had uh, another anonymous article written by a civil servant. Uh, and talking really about the celebration within the civil service following the Rwanda ruling. So we had the Rwanda ruling by the, I think it was the Supreme Court said that that was uh, an illegal yeah. um, uh, scheme and that it couldn't go ahead. Well, the civil service colleagues were um, were, were celebrating that. The civil service colleagues of this author of uh, in the in the Telegraph and. Um, Essentially, she's saying that what should be political impartiality has morphed instead into a culture of stewardship uh, as the permanent secretary of the, um, in this case, the Home Office, Matthew Rycroft, openly admitted in 2021. Uh, he was recorded telling colleagues that there was no need to slavishly follow government policy on diversity. Um, and this author goes on to say that senior staff hold events on beach on Black History Month, uh, Windrush, and microaggressions. They attend quarterly away days held online usually because most civil servants are in the office for just one day a week. Uh, they're given prizes and told by senior civil servants just how wrong any political or press criticism of their work is. Um, and they're forced to listen to HR directors give lectures on diversity and hand out awards about inclusivity. And as, sorry, inclusivity. And as the author says, we are patronized and treated like children. And it's just another sort of opening of the window, opening of the door and peering in to look at what's going on within the civil service. And I, I, I echo something you said a few weeks ago, Ben, it's just we seem to be sort of monstering the police and we seem to be monstering the civil service a lot. Um, but it would seem that we're doing that with, with reason. I mean, the example we come back to again and again is that of Anna Thomas in our casework. And I went back yeah. and I read an article that our chief counsel, Bryn Harris, wrote following that, how one woman took on the DWP, that was the Department for Work and Pensions, and won. And at the end of that article, Bryn says that uh, we need to do at least two things. First of all, civil servants from top to bottom need to be schooled in when an issue is politically controversial, which is you know, thereby you know, triggering impartiality obligations. So saying that I think this and, I, and this is what other people on Twitter think doesn't mean that that's not politically uh, controversial. It's not just as well whether you're conservative or whether you vote Labour. But actually, 
all of these woke issues, whether it's gender ideology or critical race theory, are political issues, and therefore the civil service should be impartial around them. Um, and then I think second of all, Bryn suggests that the civil service code should be amended to state expressly that impartiality requirements are not limited, yeah, well, not limited to party politics, but encompass matters of public debate generally, so related. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I thought what Bryn said there was perfect, but it's how we make that happen, Ben. You know, we've had Anna Thomas, we've now got this anonymous writer in the civil service. Uh, and it comes back to this question we ask almost every week, which is we know what needs to happen. How do we make it happen? We, we had a bit of a, um, a ding dong, didn't we? A group of us, was it two or three weeks ago over dinner about this? You'll have to uh, narrow that down, Ben. We're always arguing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, about this, this broader question of whether these uh, neutral, secular, if you like, public spaces and institutions can survive. So whether it's the BBC uh, commitment, nominal mm -hmm. commitment, I would say, to impartiality or the problems of the Met Police's approach to uh, policing different types of protest and different types of protesters, or whether it's the question of civil service impartiality. Uh, and I think there is a powerful argument. I mean, first of all, of course, um, those things should happen in the civil service. Um, but there is a powerful argument that actually um, perhaps society has just got to a point where it can't sustain those neutral spaces and that um, we need to have a... <clears throat> A media where it, where it's more like America, where you know if you're watching MSNBC, you're going to get a left or left of center perspective. If you're watching Fox News, you'll get the opposite. Um, and likewise, that when a new president comes into office, they appoint their own civil servants. Um, mm. And maybe we just accept that actually, if you're a civil servant and you're interested in government and politics, you're probably not going to be a, a neutral, unbiased, nonpartisan person. Of course, you're going to have your own views. Everyone does. Um, and that maybe that standard of neutrality is not going to work in an age of uh, hyperpolarization, where actually governments do need to take quite decisive uh, steps to please their constituents, which obviously is not happening given the massive disconnect between politics and the people um, that, that we see in this this uh, you know long long period of frustration with politicians. Um, <clears throat> so I I can see the the onus on civil service impartiality, but it. it it seems to me that might be more of a, a plaster than a than a surgery to fix mm. fundamental problems, um, and it it may be that we've just gone beyond that, um, and we need to be honest about it. Well, Professor David Starkey um, says speaks a lot for obvious reasons about constitution, the constitution, our constitution, and that a wrecking ball was essentially sort of pushed through the constitution in 1997 when the new Labour government came in. So many things were, yeah. were got rid of, so many things were changed. And he makes the claim that the constitutional changes that have taken place over the last 25 years and have been continued by the Conservative government in coalition and then they're not. Uh, are, you, you have to go back to the Glorious Revolution in the 1600s to come up with any period in English history or British history when we've seen so much constitutional change happen so rapidly. Mm. And of course, none of us, I think, who who saw what was happening uh, were really alert, to, or some were, of course, alert to it, you know, and the dangers of of abolishing certain things like the, I think the, you know, the, 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 the obviously the House of Lords, um, yeah. And its role as the Supreme Court was a, was a major, major change, and and multiple others, and the creation of the Quango Quangocracy, 
Yeah. But so many things go back to how we fit ourselves together in government, our constitutional um, makeup. And um, maybe we need to wake up to the amount of change and, and just undo some of it. Just not, not only take the foot off the brake, but go back into reverse and undo some of that. But that's going to take a bold leader to do that. Um, so interesting, interesting where David Starkey comes from. Uh, well, I, I think <laughs> I should say it's the caveat of uh, speaking in a personal capacity, but I, I do wish in hindsight that the Conservatives, had, when they'd come to power, that they'd adopted a restoration mindset um, and, uh, and and wanted to restore what had gone before. I mean, you, you see this, the, the brilliant sort of um, legal fiction that the uh, English Civil War basically never happened. Um, and that Charles II was always king, and that nothing that Oliver Cromwell did was real, and it was all, all just swept away. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, so, so the trouble we have now, and to bring it back to, to the free speech point, um, is that we're still living in a constitutional order built by Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and Harriet Harman. And yeah. we, we've had many conversations about the Equality Act, and obviously the religion belief component of that can be used to protect people, and it has been used successfully. Um, but it, it's also the driving force behind the uh, EDI training, or increasingly equity yeah. training that that people are confronted with in the in the public sector and, of course, beyond. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're still basically at, at square one, really, constitutionally, aren't we? We're still back where we were in twenty ten. Yeah, I think so. I really do. I feel it feels like we we've had that rapid rapid change under under Blair, um, and it's just been kind of solidified really over the period since but uh, that's a very deep conversation that we probably can't square out right now and here and now i think ben well, you, you wanted to talk about um uh, self-censorship in the classroom is that right i do yeah let's get let's get lawyers back to speak about that last question because it's really interesting um and uh our colleagues do you know any I do. <laughs> I do. We have plenty in the free speech. Very <laughs> good lawyers reasons. as well. <laughs> Very good lawyers. So let's uh, let's get lawyers on uh, to to return to that. Yeah. Mm. So I want to talk about this um, this study from Policy Exchange that's been reported in the Mail and in the Times as well. I think I saw it. Um, and it's it's basically looking at in the aftermath of. Uh, a, Batley Grammar School and uh, Wakefield Gate case, the question of self-censorship by teachers. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it's found that, um, here we are, 16% of teachers felt they could not bring up some topics for fear of offending. Um, and there is a particular sensitivity about uh, blasphemy. So it said that uh, it, it, this was a survey of uh, 1,100, just over 1,100 teachers, and it found that about half were fearful for their personal safety um, if there were to be blasphemy-related protests uh, outside their school. Um, and one in 10 cited Batley Grammar School, what happened there in 2021, who, uh, of course, the teacher at the centre of that and his family are still in hiding two years later. Um, so it's a really interesting piece of uh, piece of research, and um, we've spoken about this at, uh, at great length. And I fear it's a topic that we are doomed to return to um, as a country, and more trivially as a podcast. Well, it raises so many interesting questions, doesn't it, about who's actually in charge in the classroom, um, yeah. and and where the head teachers are. Yeah, um, and I think we we have certainly got to the point 
and this is the argument made by by policy exchange that we we've got to a de facto blasphemy code um and particularly questions around teaching of blasphemy islam shari abdo the life of muhammad and so on um it, it seems to me impossible that a teacher could could deal with those in a way that that actually a liberal democratic society requires um it, it just seems to be impossible and and also from the perspective of the individual teacher i mean it, it, it's clearly intolerable that the burden of writing how badly society has gone wrong on these issues should fall on one teacher and his or her family i mean we hear this again and again don't we free speech is fine unless you are you know criticizing our cherished beliefs particularly from the um, sort of islamic um world and we talked about this you know I've, i feel we we can mock anything in christianity we can mock anything in judaism we can mock anything in mormonism and we have on the west end stage and everyone goes to see it it's a family day out um but the line is drawn when it comes to mocking islam and therefore it's that's the adult world you know that is yeah. that's where we're at in the adult world and now that is indoctrination that's taking place in the classroom where the teachers uh, may not may not believe it, but are absolutely constrained. They have their hands tied and they have their fears rightly up. And it's not cowardice on their part by any means because we know what happens. Um, but I mean, one of the solutions in the article is guidance. And I wonder whether guidance mm. is the solution. It seems to me that, um, yeah, it, it at least gives a, an objective um, kind of reference point for what british values uh what free speech all of these things mean in practice including the right to critique a religion religious figures religious symbols and all of that it's a step but it's it's more than guidance because again this is cultural yeah yeah this is not at all the main point this is quite far down the list of problems this causes but it's just something i don't think we've talked about before but th th there is this really interesting um historiography about the origins of islam about the life of muhammad about the extent to which islamic scripture is a reliable description or not of what muhammad said and did um and uh, the historian tom holland has written about this um and it, it seems to me that this is an area of historical study that is of immense value and uh, worth and of course, it's something that if you're an expert in, in this area, as I emphatically, I must say, I'm not, um, you are going to spend your entire career looking over your shoulder because it might just be that, that you get away with publishing some monographs, you get away with, with giving some lectures in a small institution somewhere. Um, but then one day you publish an article in a magazine or a book that for some reason just it happens to be that one that goes viral. Um, and it happens to be that one that gets the death threats coming in, that gets the university to say, no, you can't stay here. We're terribly sorry, but it, you're just you're attracting danger. Um, and it, it, the, the loss of academic work, because there must be people, I think, who would, who would be interested in doing that, who would be interested in this area, mm -hmm. but who just think, you know, I've got a family. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the hassle. Um, and so it's, it's what we see more prosaically with, with cancel culture generally, which of course is you know, 100 times less severe than what people in situations like the Ballet Grammar School teach face. Um, but it, it's just that loss of output, that loss of 
uh, academic work, of creative work as well. Um, I mean, a film about the life of Muhammad, for instance, would be really interesting. Um, it'd be fascinating. But of course, uh, nobody now could make such a film. And those who have tried, uh, or, or indeed have made them, that there was a film, I think, in the 80s, 70s or 80s that was about Muhammad, but didn't depict him. Um, which is, is a kind of bizarre concept. But you just can't go there. You can't go there. That's what I'm saying. Um, and there is this great loss of, of of work that would otherwise have taken place, but now can't. Yeah. And and I mean, you say quite rightly that this is more extreme version of cancel culture than what we see every day. And you're right. But given what we said earlier about the direction and the acceleration as other concepts within this, mm. um, you know, in some ways, I think that maybe the the debate over Islamism is perhaps just the horse that's a couple of leagues ahead. I don't know if that's the right horse, race, yeah, horse racing uh, terminology, but maybe it's just a couple of, you know, one one circuit of the track ahead of all the others. Um, we know mm. the craziness of 2020 when statues were being yeah. pulled down, and we know the, the mob mentality um, that we've seen in all sorts of situations the madness of crowds comes back uh you know kathleen stock in in southampton university other speakers around the country and they're not talking about islam they're talking about transgender issues yeah. or even something completely different maybe they're just on the same track and a, a couple of years behind well i think there's a possibility of that um and certainly the scenes of um uh posey parker wasn't it in australia was it new zealand i can't i'm sorry i can't remember or maybe it was both yeah, I can definitely see the, the the potential for that that to worsen. And the other thing as well is the whole rhetoric of, as I said today, is trans day of awareness, the whole rhetoric around trans genocide and erasing trans lives and so on. You know, it's not hard to imagine somebody becoming really radicalized by that and, and thinking that this is something that's actually happening, that, that the government is actually um, committed to somehow exterminating trans people or... Um, making life so intolerable for trans people that they you know th th this is the this is the type of material that that could well set an isolated teenager stuck in their bedroom off on a on a path of really extreme nasty violence and so mm. on um so yeah that that seems quite quite plausible i'd have thought um yeah. Well, I mean, I go back to that article, The Tyranny of Pathological Kindness, where uh, yeah. the author talks about historical amnesia and psychological naivety, uh, but also makes an important point, which is that in this struggle, we will find unexpected allies. And we've certainly found that in the free speech union yeah. since setting up. And we talked about this before, that many of our allies on the left coming from that traditional feminist um, perspective, uh, we couldn't have done what we've done and we could have made the mark that we've made we couldn't have had the cultural influence that we have done as the free speech union as a non-partisan organization with our allies across the political spectrum and um so again perhaps that's another sign of just kind of what a culture war we're in and yeah. um uh yeah the woke mind virus which i love that phrase yeah. uh and how infected so much of of our society has become but Ben, I think we're probably drawing to the end of our time. I think we are. We? I think we are. Yeah. Um, so it's um, yeah, it was nice to share some good news about the uh, younger generation. And uh, I should say as well, if you can uh, forgive another plug, that we do give grants for uh, free speech activity on campuses the, through the Ian McTaggart program. Um, so if you or somebody you know would like to apply for some money, maybe they're running a debating society or they want to set up a podcast or they want to do a special event or a lecture or whatever it might be, uh, do contact us. We'd be happy to uh, 
happy to give you some money to help you do that. Um, it's, a, it's a really good program, um, which we're, we're delighted to run. But I think that's probably all from me. So I think goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great week.